Good morning, church. After a sermon just a couple of months ago, I was talking to a young woman who had been listening intently, and during the sermon, uh, she really began to, to wrestle with her life and her experiences in light of the, the scripture that had been preached that morning. And as we began to talk, she started to share a little bit about her life, and I, I knew a little bit more about it from others. Uh, she had experienced horrific sins against her. I mean, her, her, her past and present was really pretty terrifying. And as she went through retelling, recounting her history, uh, she began to, to talk about not only the fact that she'd been sinned against, but uh, she had also been engaged in a life of sinning against others, sinning against God. And, and we started talking about it, and she had some really big, important questions that she was asking as we were thinking through the nature of God's Word and her reality that she experienced. And as we talked, she was asking questions about the nature of the goodness of God and God's sovereignty and why bad things happen to people. And uh, I don't have time to rehearse the whole conversation here. Uh, It was a profound conversation. But at one point in the conversation, I I looked at her and I said, you know, it sounds to me like at least one question of the many questions that are so important that you are asking this morning, the one question that you seem to be asking yourself is this, is it possible that the future that God promises every child in Christ could be so good that it could be possibly be so overwhelmingly glorious that it would make all of your many great sufferings seem small? Is that possible? In other words, will, will future glory that we all long for as the people of God outweigh all of our past and present sufferings? And isn't that such an important question? It's a question that evaluates the worth and the value that is set before us and that waits on us who are in Christ. Is it really as as glorious as we are told it is and do we know how glorious it is? Well, in Romans 8, Paul is reminding Christians to remember that future glory that awaits us amidst these present sufferings that we experience. In fact, last week as Mal was preaching, we covered verse 17 that ended with a stunning declaration of the internal witness and testimony of the Holy Spirit and the heart of a believer that testifies with our spirit that we are truly children of God. That's a good thing. If we are children of God, we were told that we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. I don't want us to miss the beauty of this as we get started because verse 17 is really what Paul in verse 18 to 30 is going to be developing. Matthew Riddle, speaking of verse 17 in this inheritance, I love the language that he uses. Here's what he says. He writes, the inheritance that's spoken up here is the kingdom of glory. God, as the eternally living one, is like the earthly testator, and that he gives his children everything for an inheritance, but he gives them himself as the treasure of all treasures. Don't you love that? God himself is the treasure of all treasures 
that we look forward to in the future glory that is to come. That's what it means when it says that we are heirs of God. It means that God is the good that we look to above all else. There are many other great and glorious things that we would dare to even worship if we did not know that we were made to worship God. He will be their inheritance as they are to be his inheritance. As he himself will be all in all, so shall his children receive with him in his son everything for an inheritance. God is not just like some deified sugar daddy who gives you the good stuff. He is the sugar. He is the sweetest thing in all of creation, things seen and unseen. There is none like him. If we want a glorious vision of the things that await us, we need to understand that God is not just a means to good things. He is the good. See, the great treasure of heaven is God. And yet verse 17 ends with this startling condition. You can't miss this. You'll notice it's attached to this receiving of the inheritance. It says provided. It's like, uh uh-oh, a provision that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The, The language there is really communicating suffering then glory not merely as a pattern for the Christian life. That's true. We, we too will suffer and then we will receive glory. We will experience the cross and then the crown. But it's saying more. It's saying that this is a kind of condition, an expectation of those who truly love Christ. We must suffer with him. Of course, if we suffer with Christ, that also means that Christ is with us. Did, did you catch that? If you are suffering with Christ, it means that Christ is with you in your suffering. He meets us in our sufferings. We are united with him. We are not alone in them. And Romans 18 to 25, 8, 18 to 25 is picking up on this, this theme of future glory. Paul is about to just wax eloquent about the nature of the value of this future. In fact, I love what one commentator, Tom Schreiner, said here. He said, the thesis of this section is that the future glories, they are so stunning and magnificent that they render present sufferings inconsequential. So here's our big idea this morning. That's all preamble. Future glories dwarf a Christian's present suffering. Future glories dwarf a Christian's present sufferings. Now we see this first in in verse 18, which is kind of like a thesis sentence. It's developing verse 17 that we just talked about. It's that children of God must suffer with Christ now to be glorified with him in the future. Notice what Paul says there again in verse 18. In verse 18, he says this, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Not worth it. Now, we've seen this word for consider in verse 18 before. It's a, a math or accounting word where uh, you, read it, you reckon credits and debits. On the lips of Paul, it actually drops as a, a kind of authoritative pronouncement about the nature that we're to look at the world around us. Now, the image here really reminds me of one of those old scales. You've probably seen it. It's like a kind of a a balancing scale where you have two sort of platforms that you'll put stuff on. You got these two chains that are connected to a central beam 
and you put stuff on this side and it weighs it down and you put stuff on the other side and it sort of goes this way. And it's sort of a, a, a balance of what weighs more. Kind of like a seesaw, right? Like you've been to the park, you've got a seesaw with a kid. Maybe you have to kick a little bit more because you weigh a little bit more than the kid does. But here the comparison Paul has in mind is the sufferings of this present time on one side. It's just stacking the scale. And on the other side of this scale, you see the future glory that is to be revealed to us. Two piles of things that you're going to measure, that you're going to compare with one another. Now, sufferings, he mentions first, of this present time, they, they really do feel like heavy burdens, don't they? I mean, when you suffer, you probably have even had, even if it's an emotional suffering, a kind of visible strain that people can see, like, hey, are you okay? Well, why do you ask? Well, you don't look like you're okay. Why? Well, because I've got sort of something I'm, I'm struggling with, I'm, I'm suffering over. And those sufferings, they can come in all kinds of forms, can't they? I mean, you'll remember that Paul has already talked about suffering over indwelling sin. We are fighting sin as we await the new bodies that are going to be free from sin and death. We have desires that are contrary to God's good intentions for humanity. Or what about suffering over unfulfilled desires for good things? Have you ever been that person? You desire a godly spouse, but it just hasn't happened. You want a child, a, a baby, but, but you're not able to have a baby. Or maybe you just want a really good friend, one that you can talk to that it seems like you just want to talk to ever and the conversation never end and you just never had that kind of friend. We suffer over good things that we lack. We, we suffer with physical pain, sickness. I'm sure some of you struggle with narcolepsy. You can't sleep. That sounds horrible. I, I've never struggled with narcolepsy. You can ask my wife. I go to bed, three seconds later, I'm gone. I feel like I'm entering the pearly gates. But some people struggle, and it's not, it's, it's not funny for them. They're tired. It, it affects all of life. It makes everything harder. It's hard to think, hard to rest. You grow aggravated, frustrated. Maybe you struggle with fibromyalgia. Like, there are all kinds of physical ailments that come as a part of this fallen world. We're sometimes sinned against. You, you've perhaps been slandered or gossiped against. You've maybe been abused in many different ways. We suffer over the death of those we love. And, and let's not forget the loss of reputation, freedom, property, sometimes even our lives for the suffering that we have with Christ in this present age. There are all kinds of sufferings. They are everywhere. And, and how many of you, if I was asking you this morning, would say, I'm actually the kind of person that's better at counting my many sufferings and naming them one by one than my blessings? Like, that's kind of more natural to me. But when we do that, don't we tend to kind of stack the sufferings on the scale of our hearts? And, and it just starts to weigh us down? Well, don't miss this. Paul is not here trying to minimize the suffering that you experience, the suffering of God's children. Paul's not minimizing your suffering, the suffering that you're even thinking about this morning. And Paul's not telling Christians to kind of ignore their suffering as though they should just walk around and just act like everything's great. 
Now, Paul's concern is that you don't allow the sufferings of this present time to cause you to lose sight of the future that awaits you and abandon Christ. See, true Christians persevere to the end because God preserves them. And part of that preserving, there are all kinds of ways and means that he uses to do that. His indwelling spirit, the church that you're a part of, and also the hope of the future that awaits you. But catch this, Paul says, no matter how great your sufferings are in this present life, no matter how big that pile is that you've built of all of the sufferings that are before you, though they may be innumerable, incalculable, they are, are you listening close? Are you listening close? Come on, church. They are not worth comparing with the future glory that is to be revealed to us. Not equal, not close. Christian, we believe that Jesus is coming back for us and that our Savior who suffered and was glorified will glorify us. On the last day, he's going to give us new bodies, eternal bodies, not bodies plagued by sin and death and sinful appetites and broken down knees. We are going to have new bodies so that we might live with God in his presence forevermore. That's the future that we await. Jesus is going to restore all that is broken, all that is lost, all that seems irretrievable. God is going to restore. And Paul says the eternal way to future glory doesn't just make up for your present sufferings. Did you catch that? It crushes them. It's like hills or mountains in Phoenix, Arizona. Don't you love our mountains that are everywhere? I love them. I love to hike them. They're great. But if you look at, say, Thunderbird Mountain, a relatively average mountain, and you go and you look at Mount Everest, and then you look back at at Thunderbird Hill, you realize it's not even worth comparing in grandeur and size and majesty. Well, that's really the kind of thing that Paul wants us to do here. Come and take a look. I know that those, those sufferings that you've experienced, that you've stacked up, they sing so high. But you haven't seen the glory that's coming. You're not even going to have to do the math when you see the glory that's coming. Keep your eyes fixed on the glory that's coming. And more and more, you'll see that these things, not as big as they feel in the moment. The way to future glory is so great that it's not even worth bringing your present sufferings over to the scale to compare them. Everything about this world will be made new. And that newness is so profound that we can't even imagine with fallen minds. It's hard for us to imagine what God has planned for us while still in these bodies of sin. But notice, Paul says, all things will be made new in verses 19 to 22. All things will be made new. So second, creation, you'll find in verses 19 to 22, it is groaning and hoping in future glory. It, it groans and hopes in future glory. Now, Paul is quickly, as he says this, talking about this comparison, turns his attention towards creation. Now, I think that he's speaking of non-willing creation. If you look down to verse 20, you'll notice he speaks of not willingly I think that means that he's talking about everything from dirt to Komodo dragons to planets and stars. The, the created, non-willing world. 
He's not talking about humans or angels here. He speaks of them elsewhere, not here. In creation, notice that it is being pictured, it's so intertwined with the future of the children of God in present sufferings and future glory. He's saying they're so intertwined in those realities. Uh, Notice again what he says. Look with me. We're going to read verses 19 to 22 again. He says this, beginning in verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longings for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So here we, we find that Paul is speaking of an unwilling creation and yet he personifies it. He, he, he treats it almost like a, a person who is waiting expectantly for something that is really good. He's not waiting in the sense of, I'm trying to get out of something really bad. That that is true. The groaning speaks of that. But this willing expectation in verse 19 is talking about a longing for something really good that's coming. Have you ever had a longing for something really good that's coming? Um, I was surprised this morning. I showed up and my my father and mother-in-law are here. And uh, it just so happened I had an illustration. This is not off the fly. Like, I planned this. I'm glad you're here for it. Uh, but my, my father-in-law, he's six foot five, always happy, like in the Lord, super big blessing. His wife is as well. Uh, they are an amazing couple to us. But one thing that they've done is they've taken me to Fogo de Chao with the whole family for my birthday uh, on a couple of occasions. Now they take Gia too, but Gia always makes it clear that it's for my birthday because that's not like her thing. If you know what Fogo de Chao is, it's like man heaven. Every meat you could ever want brought right to your table again and again and again. Now, the way that that plays out is that when he tells us this is coming, we already start getting meat sweats. Because we know what we're looking forward to. And you have to prepare for it. So the boys, they're talking about it for days as it's coming up. And on the day of uh, of the event, as we call it, We have to fast, not to pray. That is a good thing to do. But on this day, we just are very clear, this is is about eating meat. And they're excited. I mean, it's all they can talk about until it comes. And that is really just a small picture of the way that Paul is talking about creation, waiting with an eager, expectant hope for something it is just thrilled to see take place and here is Paul is picturing creation waiting but what is it that creation's waiting for did you notice it's not first and fundamentally about them it involves them but the the primary thing that creation is waiting for is the revealing of the sons of God in verse 19 and then in verse 21 to obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God do you see the the primacy being put on humanity who was created at the, as the, the apex of God's good creation. Like, it's about the dignity of humanity being restored. And what creation knows is, and when God does that, that means that we too will be set free. Now here again, we're finding an already not yet reality. Paul just described the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit, already telling Christians, we are 
presently children of God. If you are in Christ, you are a child of God. And then in verse 16, what we find is, uh, we find that in verse 16, but the world, we are told, cannot yet see the consummation that awaits God's children when they will receive their new glorious bodies. There, this is not the fullness of what is to come. There is more that awaits. Now, why is creation so excited about this? Well, you'll remember that in Genesis 3, Adam's sin, it not only impacted all of humanity, every human born after Adam, but we also find that it affected creation. So in Genesis 3.18, you'll remember that the ground is cursed and that it would now produce thorns and thistles that would make it hard for Adam to labor in the land. Here we find that this world has been subjected by Adam to, in our text, two things, futility and corruption. Now, futility is just describing creation's failure to fulfill its intended purpose. Creation doesn't operate on all cylinders in the way that it was created to. It is, it is futile. But also, it's corrupt, and that points to the fact that it is decaying and dying. Decay and death plagues our world at this present time. But Genesis 3.15, you'll remember, right in the midst of the fall and the curses, we have this beautiful promise of an offspring who would come and undo the works of Satan. The, the works of sin for humanity and all of the fallenness that affected even creation itself. See, Jesus is that offspring who suffered and died and was raised from the dead in glory. He is that offspring that we've longed for. And Paul's explaining that Christ's work centers on the redemption of the children of God on the last day with new bodies. But that reality will also come with the redemption of all of creation. All of creation was affected by sin. All of creation will be affected by the redemption of Jesus Christ. Now some of us have gotten our eschatology, our belief in heaven and in times, from cartoons like Tom and Jerry, if we're honest, right? We get our, our belief in heaven and the way that the end times works from TV. We, we watch movies like A Christmas Carol and every time a, a bell rings, we think an angel got his wings or something. But that's not biblical. It's not biblical that when Tom from Tom and Jerry dies... He turns into a bodiless angel with angelic-like wings and flies off playing a harp forever, like probably the same song, right? It's not the future that awaits us. In fact, that might be an attack on the glories that actually await us. I mean, for one thing, the future that awaits us is not a bodiless existence. It's not like you can just pass through us and we don't actually like, get to touch stuff and, and smell and see. Now, God created Adam to rule over his good creation in the beginning, before sin. And verse 22 tells us that the whole creation has been groaning together. Groaning in pain as it is hoping for something more. They're groaning with the children of God. That's what it means when it says the whole creation groans together. It's groaning with us over the hope that Jesus would return to usher in a new heavens and a new earth with God's redeemed people who will live with him forever. Now, can you imagine the world that is to come? I'm just going to say you can't. Now, 
2 Peter 3 pictures this, this day, as one that's happening where creation is consumed. And whatever that means, I, I don't take this imagery to mean that this world passes away completely, but instead that it's part of the process for the way that God actually restores and redeems this fallen creation. It will be renewed and restored while the substance remains the same. I don't know how that works out. If you do, I'd love to talk with you later about how that works out. But I know that it's coming, a new world. Now think about this. This is a fallen world, futile. It is a world that is still a world that is plagued by corruption. And yet, we as humans, any chance we get, drive planes, trains, and automobiles, and now Elon Musk is taking ships to the moon to view the glories of God's creation. It's so glorious, even in its fallen, futile, corrupt existence, that we are tempted to worship this world, and many do. They live for it. They worship it. But what does a redeemed California sunset look like? Now, I know you're like, well, you know, the sun's no more because Jesus and God, they're the lamp. Just for a moment, imagine a world with, with planets that are more glorious than what we see today. Imagine a redeemed purple jacaranda tree. Have you ever seen these? These purple trees that are blossoming all over Phoenix. I had to look it up because they're just glorious. And I'm thinking, that's like a fallen jacaranda tree. What does a redeemed jacaranda tree look like? What about a redeemed peacock? I mean, he's already walking pretty proud. I mean, maybe it's a humble peacock, but like in all of its glory, in the way that he was created to look. Or what about a redeemed ultimate warm vanilla caramel cake? <laughs> I need to move on before, you know, we start thinking bad thoughts, but I guarantee you it tastes heavenly. And why do we use language like it tastes heavenly? It's because we're like, this is so good. It's just a foretaste of what heaven's going to be like. But if we are honest, it's not even close. See, the point is that everything that you know about this world, it expects an incalculable upgrade. This world, as it fell, it came with this hopeful promise that one day in Genesis 3, all these things will be undone. We will receive and be restored to what we were before. Can't wait for that day. When is it coming? The world knows. Creation knows. It is, its future is incredibly bright. So think about this, if you are living for the pleasures of this world, this world, your, your sense of pleasure and delight and the feelings, the smells, the taste, the things that you see of this world, and not for the pleasures of the world to come, Paul would say, you are settling and your math is way off. You, you aren't thinking about the glories that await you. But not only that. Notice that creation groans and eagerly hopes for future glory. Third, we groan for the future glory in verses 23 to 25. It's not just creation that's doing it, it's the children of God that are doing it. Uh, look again with me at verses 23 to 25. Here's what God's word says. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we await eagerly for adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are Say, we were saved. 
Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Now, we ourselves here speaks of all Christians. That's all of those who have been justified by faith alone, as Paul has said previously in Romans 3. Those who have the indwelling Holy Spirit, as he mentioned in Romans 8.16. Those who have God as their heavenly Father, as he just said recently in chapter 8. There appears to be a kind of reversal that's taking place here, though. Did you catch that? In the Old Testament, God receives the first fruits of Israel's labors. But here, Christians have received the first fruits, specifically the gift of the Holy Spirit, as that first installment and guarantee of the future redemption that they await. Again, we're we're already adopted sons and daughters of God, but here Paul is pointing us to that not yet future consummation, finality of what it is that we have been waiting for. When Jesus returns to give us new glorified bodies, completely freed from the effects of sin and death. Now, brothers and sisters in Christ, I just want to remind you yet again, the best is yet to come. Verses 24 to 25, they really, what they are trying to do is throw our attention into the future that awaits with the focus on hope. A beautiful, glorious word that means something very unique in Christianity. When we talk about hope, we're not talking about wishful thinking. I hope I'm able to make it tomorrow. Probably won't. We're not talking about some kind of word that is made up based on human efforts and abilities to achieve it. No, hope here in the Bible, it, it is in the promised future that awaits Christians. It is part of the basic starter package of biblical faith. Your faith comes with hope. Hope and a promised future promised by God. Now notice in verse 24 that Paul says this hope is the hope that we were saved into. Now that's the past, a past reality. And so often when Paul talks about salvation in the book of Romans, he's speaking of a future. But here we were saved in the past into this hope And that hope is actually saying a hope of a future that is to come. So this is a kind of past event that pushes us forward into a future that's promised. This hope, Paul is saying, I believe, is an inevitable part of the Christian life that came with our conversion when we were saved in the past. It's a a vision that looks to the future and the promises of God. Hope here does not mean a a fanciful wish or a positive outlook on life. I'm hopeful, I'm happy. Doesn't make sense with the way everything looks. No, it's not disconnected from the facts. This hope. Christians hope in a reality that already exists for us. It is kept in heaven. And it awaits the return of Christ. This hope is not something that we hope happens and appears in the future. It's something that's coming for us and to us. We hope in the future that God promises. We hope in fact. We hope in a new heavens and a new earth that we cannot see or taste or hear or smell or feel with the new resurrected bodies and we are waiting. But one day faith will become sight and our hopes will become halves. In verse 25, it is telling us, wait for it. 
wait for it patiently might be better translated wait with endurance. In other words, stay with Christ. Verse 17, stay with him. Stay with him amidst the trials that come your way. Abide in him. We don't become impatient for Christ's return and give up. We hold fast to him. And don't miss this. The word for wait here is the same word that described creation in verse 19. Now think about the logic of this. If creation waits patiently to be an audience of what's going to be revealed in the sons of God, then how much more should the sons of God be waiting for that which waits for us and will be shown and revealed on that last day? Can you imagine? Can you imagine the future that awaits us? We, we can't with fallen minds. We, we ought to try. We ought to give our lives to it. But we should just know up front, I am going to fall horribly short of what it is that I'm waiting for. My best imaginations are going to pale in comparison to what awaits us. It, it reminds me of a quote by even C.S. Lewis. And uh, we've told you C.S. Lewis has problematic theology in places, but writes great things here and there. And here's one of them. He once wrote, remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person that you talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else horror and corruption such as you now meet, if at all, in a nightmare. Your ordinary person on the other side of heaven, glorious beyond comprehension. It reminds me a little bit of the image that we get in Revelation 22 where this angel shows John all the future that awaits us. And as he's looking and taking in these things, even the apostle says, and I bowed down to worship him. His theology got bad real quick because he was so overwhelmed, right? That's maybe not what happened, but sounds good in the moment. And what happens in that moment? The angel says, what are you doing? Stand up. Worship God. Worship God. That's the response to the glories that await us. To worship God. If we were to see any piece of heaven right now, one of the angels in heaven, the new creation, the creatures that will be there, a redeemed earth, not to mention our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the Lamb on the throne, we would be moved to worship. So how much more should we be moved to worship God who has brought all of this to pass? Can you imagine what it would be like to dwell in the presence of God forever as our great inheritance? Well, let me end with some applications, and I'll get to as many as I can. But I think what Paul is wanting us to do with this is actually help suffering saints make sure that their eyes are focused on the future that is to come. And so I want to just give you some practical applications. This is for those of you who are suffering right now and need to be helped. This is for those of you who will suffer, and that is, I believe, all of us in many ways. You need to be equipped. You might not feel your need for it today, but just take notes. You might need to go back and revisit them later. And then for those of you who are outside of Christ, I hope that this brings encouragement and help and hope to you. First, first application. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know that suffering is normal Christianity. It is not some aberrant form of Christianity. It is not Christianity on steroids. It is a natural thing to suffer 
in this life. It is a broken world. It does not work the way that it's supposed to. We're all familiar with Peter's words in 1 Peter 4.12 where he tells the church, Beloved, do not be surprised of the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening. And yet if we're honest, don't we often, our first response when something really painful happens is we're surprised? I thought I was living right. And it feels strange, like, I don't think this is supposed to happen to people like me. I don't know about you, but I'm pretty good at cross-referencing when I'm preparing for a sermon, but not so much when life gets hard. It, it takes time and prayer and meditation on the Word to remind me of the truths of who God is and the future that awaits. Suffering, don't let it surprise you. It is a normal thing. It's a part of this world. Two, suffering is part of union with Christ. Now, so often, I think our first response to suffering is, we feel like, where did Jesus go? He was good, and thing, he was here, and things were good, and then he left, and that's when things got really bad. Now, we know that that's not true theologically, right? We're in Christ. We're united with him. Now, nothing can separate us from the love of God. We're going to get there later in Romans 8. And yet, it feels as though suffering is some kind of proof that, that like, God's not in it or with us. But in 1 Peter 4.13, we're told that instead of being surprised by trials, we should actually rejoice because insofar as you share Christ's suffering, you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. That word for share is a beautiful word, a, a word koinonia. It speaks of fellowship. And it says insofar as you are in fellowship and union with Christ and his sufferings, you're able to rejoice because you know that this doesn't mean that Christ is absent. He's actually more present with you in this suffering. And it comes with the promise of future hope. You'll be glorified with him on the last day. There's a real sense in which we are fellowshipping with Christ. And Christ with us. When we are suffering and seeking to be faithful. Maybe fumbling, maybe tripping, maybe stumbling, but holding fast to Christ. You know, this image of, of how Christ is with us reminds me of an Old Testament image. Uh, you've probably read the book of Daniel before. I know some of the youth have been through that with Kevin. Uh, in that book, you remember the image where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the fire because they would not bend the knee uh, to anyone but Yahweh? And it's while they're in the fire that they look in and they say, like, wait a minute, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Like, we did throw three guys in there. Did another guy sort of sneak in? No. Why is there four? Why do we have four guys in there? reason is it's because God was with them in the fire. Was it the angel? We, was it a Christophany? I'm, I'm not arguing that. I'm just saying that we know that God is with his people in their suffering. It's a vision that we get there. Christ's presence with the child of God becomes more visible in the lives of God's servants as they suffer with Christ and for Christ. Third, God never misses your suffering. Not only is he with you, he also is paying attention. Um, so my kids know that sometimes I'm thinking about something and I'm there in body. But they can ask me for all kinds of stuff that I will say yes to that I will have no memory of later. They've gotten pretty good at it. Uh, ben almost got a new car out of the deal, but that's another story. I'm joking. But sometimes we visit, we visit Christ like that. That Christ is like, maybe he's present, but he obviously doesn't see and hear and feel and understand the depths of what I'm going through. Does he know? Does he understand? Has he missed it? Well, we know in verse 17, again, 
We suffer with Christ. Uh, Commentator Edmund Clowney says, our trials are never forgotten by the Lord. He keeps his tears in his bottle. Now, Clowney is seeing a connection here to Psalm 56, 8, where David says, you have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? It's a, a beautiful picture of the way that God not only pays attention to our sorrows, but he keeps track of them, record of them, he counts them, he keeps them. And each one of those becomes a kind of promise to the believer. In fact, uh, when I visited Israel some years back, they would sell these ancient little tear bottles and, and, and that's what they held them for, was as a reminder that whatever sorrows the people of God go through, they are promises about future fulfillments of the way that God will bless his people, the way that he will return to them the, the years that the locusts have eaten. See, faithful tears are future investments, brothers and sisters. I know that we've got many of you who are suffering all kinds of different things today, and you might be thinking, nobody knows the pain. They don't understand the meaning behind the tears. God knows. He sees the tears that nobody else sees, and he understands what they mean, and he gives us a promise that the future, whatever the tears are, will wipe away every tear, every pain, and the future is incredibly bright. Not only does he wipe them away, but he spins them into heavenly gold. So grief, even our grief, serves an eternal purpose. It gives us hope for what God's going to do in the future. I mean, can God turn this thing that I'm grieving over so much into something that when I look back on it, it seems so small that it dwarfs it? God says, yes, absolutely. Fourth, sufferers need to keep two days in mind. Today and the last day. Isn't that really what Paul is saying? You should have a kind of last day catalyst that wakes you up every morning to live each day. We listen to Jesus in Matthew 6, 34, who says, Do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. We need to face the sufferings of this day head on. But we need to do that trusting in Christ, who will return on the last day. To eradicate suffering. To undo all that's been done. And to restore all that's been lost. First Peter ends in 5.10 saying this, and this is a book to sufferers. After you have suffered a little while, and it doesn't matter how long you have suffered, in light of eternity, it will seem a little while. The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Sovereign Christians need to keep the hope of the future steady before their eyes. And here's the good news of the Bible. This world, this world that we are so tempted to worship is the basement, not the ceiling for me and you. The, the future that we await is incredibly bright. We live in Phoenix, Arizona. It is sunny every day. Very bright. It goes from bright to really bright. And every day we wake up, we see a reminder that this is nothing compared to the glory that awaits us in Christ. He will be our son. I love what Scottish pastor Horatius Bonner wrote in the 19th century. He said, when, in, when God's children suffer, a really good book, When God's Children Suffer, every trouble, whoever, however light, comes fragrant with blessing. Shall we then overlook it or thrust it away? It's a new opportunity of getting nearer to God and learning more of his love.
Fifth, expect a dramatic return on suffering losses. Okay, here's where the math comes in again. It's really good. Suffering, I think, so often when you are struggling, it's about pain and losses. I have lost so much. I did not get as much as I thought I should. I don't deserve this because of that. We're doing a kind of accounting in our hearts. It's not fair. It's not right. We deserve this, got that. He got this, not that. Should have gotten something else. Why did I get this? But there's a kind of math that we need to be drawn to in the Bible. And and it comes from Jesus' mouth in Mark 10, 29 to 31. He gives a a profound promise. I think you could easily just read over and not, not really notice what he says. He says there in Mark 10, 29 to 31, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Hundredfold. Whatever you have given, a hundredfold returns. Now Jesus promises a couple things here that I want us just to think about. One, did you notice that God promises you will not only recoup your losses at the resurrection, that, that's true, but you will receive it back a hundred times. Now I am... I'm not really that great at math anymore. I used to love math, but I had to figure this out online. I think that works out to a 10,000% return. Did you you catch that? Suffering seems so light, I mean, so heavy. Jesus said, hey, wait a minute. Whatever this works out to, this is 10,000 times better. Now, if you saw Mount Everest, Thunderbird Mountain, like, it's clear, the math, like, this is better, right? I think this defines the nature of Paul's promise in Romans eight twenty eight that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. And that's at least speaking of suffering, bad things that work out for good things. Six, remember that the sufferings are light and momentary. Second Corinthians 4, 17, Paul writes this, for this light and momentary affliction is uh, that he is preparing, uh, in this, he is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Light and momentary. Not the way I usually receive pain and suffering. Usually feels heavy and long until it's over. And then I'm like, oh, you know, it, it wasn't as bad as I thought it was in the moment. When I thought, in the moment, I thought it was really bad. But now, that actually wasn't as bad of a season because there was this other season, that kind of thing. I think about Paul and the sufferings that he went through. Beaten. He was imprisoned he was defamed he was mocked and yet in all of those things finally died for Christ and he says all of these great things light and momentary compared with what is to come now that seems wrong at first blush but it's that second part that explains the first the eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison does it sound like the same kind of math that he's working out as he's doing in Romans 8 See, when we understand the dramatic turn that's coming, present suffering seems smaller. In fact, the more that we grow in understanding the weight of the coming glory, the more it tips the scales of our present sufferings. We need to draw on that future account that awaits us. Finally, I just want to be clear that this kind of suffering then glory, suffering now in this present time, future glory with God forever, that is a promise that only comes to those that are in Christ. You'll remember that the book of Romans begins with all of humanity 
under the wrath of God. In other words, the sufferings of this life are just a preamble to the greater suffering that comes for those who are outside of Christ. But those who are in Christ, what awaits us are glories that we can't even begin to imagine. He gives us some small handles, but, but we aren't even able to conceive of the great things that God has for his people in his presence forevermore. So if that's you this morning, you don't know Christ. You've not put your faith in Christ. You are not justified by faith alone. The Holy Spirit is not indwelling you. You don't know God as your Father. Then the one thing that I would ask and beg you to do today is put your faith in Jesus Christ. Become a child of God. Experience the future that awaits you. That's my hope for you. If you want to talk about that, I or a number of people in this room would love to talk to you about what it means to put your faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we come before you, we praise you for the future that awaits us. Father, we know that this world is full of suffering. But Father, we know that any suffering that this world brings, it will on that last day and forevermore seem so small in comparison to the majestic Mount Everest-like glories that you have awaiting for your people forever in Christ. So Lord, help us to be a patient people. Help us as a church to be known for waiting on you, trusting you, even when things are hard. Father, I pray for the saints in this room, Lord. Lord, hold us fast until that great day when your son returns. And if there are those that are here that do not know you today, Father, we pray that they would fly to Christ and put their faith in him once and for all. In your name we do pray.